0: well john come uh one of the privileges i have is spending time with uh a few of the guys here in the church and john and i every once in a while get together for breakfast yeah and we got together for breakfast and um and he started talking i said john i think you should preach (laughs) so that's why he's up here this morning so i'm just excited thank you very much brother thank you good morning It's so good to be with you all this morning. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. When we think about the word communion, if we were raised in church, I bet what comes to mind is that thing we do with the bread and the cup that's here before us. But the word communion carries broader meaning as well. It's about sharing space, spending time with others, communicating, living in a community. All of these are present at the source of our communion, the Last Supper, but perhaps they are not always our focus. Christians have sometimes said that there is a God-sized hole in our hearts waiting to be filled. God desires relationship with us and has made us for relationship with him. But couldn't we also say that God has placed in our hearts an other-sized hole as well, meant to be filled by others? Truly, from the book of Genesis, our origin story, we know that it is not good for us to be alone Furthermore, as Christians, we believe in one God, but expressed in three, Father, Son, and Spirit, each different and distinct, but totally unified. God is in relationship with God's self. Humanity, made in his image then, must be formed to have relationship with itself as well. We participate in communion, not simply as independent Christians, but as a fellowship of difference. But despite this being our very God intended nature, this reality is not always one that feels natural. We are often uncomfortable, afraid, or even angered by expressions of God's humanity that differ from our own. Instead, we are drawn to what is familiar and often commune with those who share our values. With the World Cup recently, I bet if I looked online, it wouldn't take long for me to find some video evidence of this. Fans are passionate about their teams. But we all know this is not just about sports, not by a long shot, and it's this lack of unity, this putting up walls and drawing lines in the sand that have been weighing on me recently. And maybe they've been weighing on you too. So first, I want us to look again at the Last Supper and ask a simple question, who's sitting at the table? Early Christian churches and the special role that he plays in the story. In all this, I believe we will see the amazing ways that God brings different people together. But above all, my hope is that the Spirit would work in our hearts, bringing us closer to other people, the image-bearing creations of God with whom we share space in our everyday lives. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, thank you for the space that brings us together. I pray that our eyes would be open to see you this morning, our hearts would be open to feel you, and our minds would be open to receive what it is you have for us. Amen. So, part one, who is at the table? We know from the passage that I read at the beginning that it is the disciples, the 12 apostles, who are at the table with Jesus during the Last Supper. Of the disciples, some of them... Our main characters, and others are background characters across the biblical text. But Luke's gospel, in Luke's gospel, we are introduced to the twelve as a group for the first time in chapter six. When the morning came, he called his disciples to him, and he chose twelve of them, whom he also designated apostles. Simon, who he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas, who became a betrayer. Although there are 12 of them, we only need two to see just how much difference is around this table. The first of them is Simon, the Zealot. But what is a Zealot? Here's what I found. The zealots were a fact. I also found this zealot, member of a Jewish sect noted for its uncompromised. Simon has likely entered our story alongside the Galilean fishermen in Acts five. At this point, not all of the disciples have been called yet, although who knows whether the ones already called knew that. But sure enough, after some time together, Jesus decides it's time to recruit a new member. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi, sitting in his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. It's hard to imagine a bigger monkey wrench than that for Simon, for really all of the Jewish disciples. One thing I found interesting is Levi's name, in the original, it is Levi. That's how we first meet him. But throughout most of the Gospels, he's called Matthew. And the name Matthew means gift from God, gift from Yahweh. So you can imagine thinking for Simon, who's opposed vehemently to the Romans and to the system of taxation they've started, how he would have to wrestle with that. But as the story continues... These two guys stick around, united in their desire to follow Christ. And on the night Jesus was betrayed, they are seen around the table. These two, Matthew and Simon the Zealot, are chosen, desired even, to be there. Jesus was drawing people together, separated by cultural and political boundaries, bringing them into communion with each other. What seemed relationally impossible is now the reality. They walk together, pray together, serve together, and they eat together, united in Christ in a new kind of love, a new kind of fellowship. Moving forward, the next chapter in our story for today is the dramatic entrance of the Holy Spirit. certainly quite a dramatic depiction there. After the resurrection of Jesus and during his last days on earth, the disciples are primed for action. Prophesied many years ago, God's people have been waiting to see the kingdom of Israel restored. And here without question is their resurrected king, their savior, their Messiah who conquered even death, ready to usher in the new age. There is no doubt the revolution has begun. It is in Acts chapter 2, where the Holy Spirit enters our story and the disciples get their revolution. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts, Cretans, and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, What does this mean? Revolution indeed, but perhaps not the revolution that anyone expected. It's interesting to me that the surrounding people don't suddenly understand the disciples because their ears change. Listeners are not forced to learn a new language. Instead, we see the Spirit move outward, meeting the listeners in their own tongues. We won't go into all the history here, but it is essential to understand that at this point in the story, the Christian religious identity that we think of today has not yet been formed. The disciples are certainly Christ followers, but they are unquestionably Jewish. And many of the people groups represented by these tongues, these languages at Pentecost, are groups with which the Jewish people have contentious or even violent histories. At this point, I'd like to turn our attention to some of the words of Dr. Willie Jennings. Earlier this year, um, I take classes online at a school in Calgary, and that school invited Dr. Willie Jennings, a theologian, to come and speak. And if you check out his books and his stuff, you'll learn way more about this than than I can tell you. Uh, He's inspired a lot of what I'm saying today. But I think his words here are really, really appropriate. He says, The deepest reality of life in the Spirit depicted in the book of Acts is that the disciples of Jesus Rarely, if ever, go where they want to go or to whom they would want to go. Indeed, the Spirit seems to always be pressing the disciples to go to those to whom they would in fact strongly prefer never to share space or a meal, and definitely not life together. Yet it is precisely this prodding, to be boundary crossing and border transgressing, that marks the presence of the Spirit of God. Pentecost is a special event. It marks the beginning of this new movement, which is going to de-center the Jewish people. It's going to be tough for them. They're going to have to make room inside God's family because the Spirit is reaching out. Make no mistake, the Jews of the Old Testament, the 12 tribes, are the essential root of our faith. And history has shown us the dangers of forgetting that. Yet by the Spirit... These boundaries are expanded outward from a single ethno-religious group to a multi-ethnic and diverse family of Christ followers. Here, the difference is by design. Here again at Pentecost, we see a sharing that goes across boundaries, inviting people who were not previously invited to belong in God's family. The final thing I want to draw our attention to today oops, I missed one. That's okay. Um, is Paul the Apostle Paul? It's unfortunate to me that the writings of Paul have often been used as what I would call theological weaponry, wielded by members of divided factions in the church. Well, I'm, of course in favor of theological study and dialogue. In fact, I enjoy, enjoy it quite a bit. Using Paul's words to drive wedges between different denominations and believers, ends up accomplishing the exact opposite of what Paul was trying to do and moves in the opposite direction of his own journey. When we meet Paul at first, he is introduced as a rigid and devout Jewish man and an oppressor of these new Jewish Christ followers. He is a force of division and destruction brought into the view under the shadow of religious murder. Oh, sorry. Hmm. Okay. Uh, Awesome. Thank you so much, guys. (laughs) At Stephen, they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragging him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. Paul and Saul are the same person, two names. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of their killing him. Here Stephen, a follower of Christ, angers religious leaders so much with his following of Christ that pious and holy men scream at him, cover their ears, chase him out of town, and stone him to death. Paul, along with these religious leaders, hates these Christ followers because they are part of the same story, the story of God's people, but do not share in the same beliefs. But Paul becomes transformed by an encounter with Christ in Acts 9. And his life work going forward becomes not this hatred, this division, but becomes laying the foundation for the new multi-ethnic family of God, resolving conflict and working out what started at Pentecost. He moves from being a rigid force of hatred and division to a force of love and communion, unifying Gentile Christ followers with Jewish Christ followers. This is what I mean by moving in the opposite direction. In the story of God's people and in the life of Paul, the narrative moves from division towards unification. The healing, salvation, and expansion of God's family. Bringing people together. There are many verses I could choose from the letters of Paul to sort of get us thinking about this, but these are probably two of my favorites. 1 Corinthians 10, 16, 17. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. And Galatians 3, 28, 29. This is probably my favorite. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. In Paul's letters, he's doing a complex but beautiful work. In Corinthians, he reminds us that there is one cup. And one loaf that we all share together. And in Galatians, Paul not only makes perhaps the most culturally, politically, and theologically radical statement possible, he also takes us all the way back to God's ancient promise for Abraham that through his descendants, all nations will be blessed. Not one nation, but many nations brought together. In a book by an author named Scott McKnight, Fellowship of Difference, the title you'll notice I have kind of borrowed for this sermon, he references a study that sought to understand what the early Christian house churches would have looked like, the kind of churches Paul would have been guiding and working with. He writes that if the Apostle Paul's house churches were composed of about 30 people, this would have been their approximate makeup. A Roman craft worker, in whose home they meet, along with his wife, children, a couple of male slaves, a female domestic slave, and a dependent relative, some tenants with families and slaves and dependents also living in the same home, but in rented rooms, some family members of a householder who himself doesn't go there, a couple of slaves whose owners do not attend, some freed slaves who don't participate as much, a couple of homeless people a few migrant workers renting in small rooms in the home. Add to this mix some Jewish folks and perhaps an enslaved prostitute. This diverse communion didn't just exist generally across wide spaces. This was the reality inside their homes. This is not the kind of communion that people form easily on their own. And I'm not suggesting for a moment that this is about gritting our teeth and forcing ourselves into other people's lives. This is not about human effort or will that will not work. The communion that God desires for humanity can only become real through the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. When I was writing all of this out, preparing this for you today, I, uh, I thought it would be quite cringe to mention the idea of a New Year's resolution for us. But the more I thought about it, the more I wanted to do it. (laughs) I I can be really cynical myself, and those of you who maybe knew me in my undergraduate days, which maybe not be too many of you, will definitely know that. Uh, But if I can set that aside for a moment, I'd really like us to consider what kind of communion might the Spirit be calling us into this next season? What impossible thing that God be making possible. Today, we've looked at three chapters in the New Testament story, but in their own way, they all represent new beginnings of their own. The institution of the Last Supper, the entering in of the Holy Spirit, and the formation of the early Christian church. New beginnings are happening all the time in God's story. Maybe this can be a new beginning for you. I have no idea what God has in store for you this year. I do not know how or if he may transform these ideas into practical, real-world engagement with the diverse yet image-bearing people you all share space with. These are ongoing processes, to be sure. But today, in our church right now, we get to take communion together. So when we come to the table... When we commune with others, what is our role? Christ has invited you. He's eager to share this meal with you. So come and sit. Take part. Not as an individual, but as members of a family. God's family. Today we take communion. Let's resist the urge to shrink in, but instead look around. This is something we get to do together, not as Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, but all made one in Christ. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for bringing us together this morning. I pray that as we pause and reflect, as we listen to the music, as we take this communion together. I pray that we would see you in the center calling us all together and that we would see each other for the image-bearing creations you have made all of us to be. Amen.